Parks that Joe Wayne was saying was originally written as a poem, um, not a song. It was written by Charles Wesley. And he was walking through the streets of London and snowing and the church bells was ringing. They started writing this song and he actually read it in church on Christmas Day. And in 1753, George Whitefield, who was a friend of his, adapted the poem into the song we know today. Now, Charles was the brother of John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church. And many of the people they were reaching were uneducated or illiterate and couldn't read. And so Charles began writing hymns, songs like Ark the Herald Angels Sing, Carols and Hymns as a way to teach people theology. Little fun fact, he wrote over 6,000 songs in his life, only surpassed by Fanny Crosby, who wrote 8,000. I don't think I've even written 6,000 emails in a little song, but incredible. But we're in the middle of our Advent series, and we're talking about the unusual number of songs that come up in the birth story of Jesus. And today we're looking at the song the angels sang, the very song that Charles Wesley wrote about. At Advent, of course, we don't just get ready for Christmas. It's not just a way to feel Christmassy and start thinking about Christmas. We at Advent look back and remember Jesus' first coming, and we look forward eagerly to Jesus' second coming. Advent is a time of eager anticipation as we celebrate everything God has done, both in this year and over human history, and wait for God, for what God will do in the future. Martin Luther talked about how at Advent we should celebrate, celebrate a triple Advent. We celebrate his arrival in the manger, we anticipate his coming in glory, and right now, right where we are, we experience his presence in our hearts. In the Christmas story, in the Bible, the songs come up a lot, as we've been talking about. We look at Mary's song, we look at Zachariah's song, and today we're going to look at the angel song. And you know what? Angels are weird. They really are. Like, we, we've gotten so used to them in Western culture, like the idea of them, we don't think about how weird they are. Throughout the Bible, angels show up, and the Bible doesn't bat an eye. The Bible's not like, this crazy being showed up. Let me give you some back history on angels, you know? Like, you can't flip to a section in the Bible where it's like, here's how angels were created. Here's how everything's spelled out about their origin. Most of the time, the Bible is much more interested in their message than it is in these messengers at all. And many times, we as readers of the Bible fixate on the angels in the Bible. It's like, ah, well, I don't really care about this. It's more important about what they say. And yet, in this short account of Jesus' birth, we have angels all over the place. If you could throw a rock at the Christmas story and hit three or four angels, you know? Um, yes, yeah, don't throw a rock at angels. Gabriel, one of only two named angels in the Bible, shows up to Mary and Elizabeth. An angel appears in Joseph's dream. Angels show up and sing for the shepherds. And it's that last event we're looking at today. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 16. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, and I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and singing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, we should go check this thing out. That's my purpose. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Um, the word angel 
doesn't mean like winged celestial being. That's what we think about. It comes from the Greek word angelos and the Hebrew word malak, which simply means messenger. Uh, in the first century, people heard the word angel all the time and they weren't shocked by it. Like all the time, if you just were reading this in Greek, you would see the word angelos, angelos, and you'd be like, oh, that's just a normal messenger. Messengers from the Roman Empire were sent all over the place. They were called angels, if we're going to translate it that way. But in the context of the story that we're reading, these are messengers from God, some type of special celestial messengers. In the Old Testament, sometimes God sent celestial messengers, and sometimes God sent human messengers, and we call them prophets and priests. Um, we are also messengers for God. God sends us, we're carrying his good news wherever we go, bringing hope to people in darkness. And you know what? People are hungry to hear from God. You know, like how many of you were like, hey, if you do this, you can hear from God. Who won't do that? I mean, why do people use tarot cards and read their horoscopes? We desperately want something or someone beyond us to help us make sense of our world. We want to hear from something beyond us, something divine. We want to hear from God. When there's no word from God, the people perish, according to Proverbs 29. Like we need a word from God. Think about how you can encourage your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, and family with a message of hope. Like the angels, we are messengers of the gospel. We're still bringing this good news that they brought to the world. The good news of Jesus, that God did not come to earth to condemn us, but to rescue us. The good news that God doesn't hate us, but loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his only son to die, to defeat sin and death, so we might be with him, and we might become like him. So... Back to the angel zone. What does an angel look like? What comes into your mind when you think about the angel? I mean, it's almost the iconic image that we see all over this time of year. You know, like a beautiful model man or woman, long flowing hair, beautiful robe, giant bird wings out of their back. Um, the only problem with that is nobody really started drawing that until about 500 years after Jesus. And that's when artists started drawing angels this way. The problem also with that image is it's never, ever given in the biblical text. You can read the Bible from the beginning to the end, and they never describe angels like they show up on top of our Christmas trees and they show up on our wrapping paper. We do have a few descriptions of celestial beings in the Old Testament. None of them describe beautiful models with bird wings. In most places, angels aren't described at all. Just real quickly, listen to some of these descriptions. In Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, he described these angelic beings that are wheels within wheels covered in eyes. That would look beautiful on top of your Christmas tree, right? You know? Um, Daniel 10, Daniel says that Gabriel appears to him and he has a burning, shining body that looks like molten metal and his eyes are just flames and he speaks with a booming voice that rattles the room. Hmm. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's intense. Isaiah 6 and the book of Revelation uh, give us pictures of angels with three sets of wings that cover themselves, so they're just all wings, and those wings are covered in eyes. That'll give you some nightmares, you know? Um, on Etsy, there's people who sell biblically accurate angel tree toppers, and I was like, I'm going to buy one just to be funny. I'm like, that's terrifying. I'm not going to buy one. Um, cherubim, who we usually think of as like cute little babies, you know, and little diapers flying around with bows and arrows. Uh, no, in the Bible, they're described as some type of sphinx-like angel with like a human attributes and animal attributes. And um, I think there's a reason that most of the time in the Bible when an angel shows up, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. I've got something to tell you. Don't be afraid. 
They are scary, weird creatures. Imagine if any of these things showed up. I mean, honestly, they sound like a monster from Stranger Things on Netflix. Like something came through from the other side, and I'd be like driving nails into my baseball bat. Like I gotta fight this thing. What is this monster? But let's get back to the angels. <laughs> they arrive to announce the birth of the long-expected Messiah, and they make this huge announcement. Perhaps the most important cosmic announcement in the history of our world to an ordinary group of shepherds. Modern historians estimate that the Israelites in the first century sacrificed somewhere around a quarter of a million lambs a year in the temple. At least 250,000 lambs a year in the temple. So they needed a lot of shepherds and a lot of sheep. And it's reasonable that Bethlehem, being just five miles from Jerusalem, um, that these sheep were likely headed for eventual sacrifice in Jerusalem, just like Jesus was. When John the Baptist sees Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, he says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Announcing the arrival of God in human form, the eternal king whom Israel and humanity and all creation had long awaited for, to some ordinary shepherds, rather than wise men or rulers or the wealthy, this was very on brand for Jesus. Like, this fit the rest of the story very well. As an adult, he constantly refused to walk the political lines of his day. He ate with sinners. Don't eat with those people. He's like, I don't care. Um, he refused to kiss up to the wealthy and the powerful. He subverted the rule of the religious leaders. And so him announcing, having the announcement of his birth come to ordinary shepherds, it fits him. That's just who he is. Some have referred to the way that Jesus described life in his kingdom and how he operated his ministry as an upside-down kingdom. Because it's so contrary to how we naturally think in this broken world. Like, we think to get ahead, I need money, I need power, I need this, I need that. You know, you can only get ahead with violence and force and control. Just consider some of his teachings. The first will be last. The last will be first. If you want to be the greatest, become the greatest servant of all. That's just not the approach you find in most modern leadership courses, you know? Like, if you want to get ahead and be a CEO, it doesn't really look like the teachings of Jesus. It's very upside down how he thinks. Just like God had chosen an ordinary shepherd named David to become king and create the bloodline that would one day include the Messiah, now he is announcing his coming to an ordinary people going about their ordinary I love that God speaks to us in the ordinary, everyday moments of life. It's not just like you exclusively have to come to a sacred space to hear from God, you know? You don't have to show up at a church or a rented church space like us. Or you don't have to show up at these special moments, and that's the only place you can hear from God. God speaks to us in the ordinary, everyday moments of life. Some people try to chase God in emotional high after emotional high. I had some friends, and they would go around to like these Christian conferences, and they would get like the music and the speaker and the lights and stuff. They'd be so excited. And then they'd come back to ordinary life and they're like, I'm just not feeling it anymore. So they'd sign up for another conference and they're like, yeah, I'm all excited about being a Christian again. And then they'd come back to their ordinary job and their ordinary family and their ordinary neighbors. And they're like, I'm not feeling it. And they'd go to another conference. You don't have to chase highs, emotional highs and conferences and special events. Because we become disciples when we learn to listen for God in our everyday, ordinary moments. Interruptions to our ordinary routines should not be met with anger or frustration. I like to plan things, and then I like that plan to go perfectly. And when that plan doesn't go perfectly, my world is ruined. You know, it's like, I don't like it. But often interruptions into the ordinary are where God announces the extraordinary. 
The final note about the shepherds before we move on is that they likely give us a season for when Jesus was born, when the birth of Jesus took place. And sorry, it probably wasn't December. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating Advent during the winter. Early Christian missionaries used the story of Advent to reach pagans who celebrated Saturnalia, which was a Roman festival of gift-giving and merriment, and they're like, we're just going to bring the story of Jesus in here. Um, and then as they reached pagans who celebrated the winter solstice, they were like, you have a story about darkness and light. Let me tell you a better story about darkness and light. It involves light the world. And so they incorporated these things in order to reach people. But the text tells us that the shepherds were sleeping with their flocks in the field. Something that happened in the springtime in first century Israel, not during the rainy months of winter. It would have been very unusual. So, I'm not saying it didn't happen in December, but Jesus likely was born in spring. Regardless, it's good to celebrate his birth. So, there are shepherds sleeping, and an angel shows up. And we're not given any detail if this is a glow-skinned angel, a ring within a ring angel, a sphinx-like angel, or a bunch of wings covered in eyes. The only detail we're given is that the glory of God surrounded them. So imagine this, you're sleeping outside at night, surrounded by sheep. All of a sudden, it just lights up. Glory is usually referencing a display of light and energy. And so at this point, the shepherds are probably freaking out, the sheep are probably freaking out, and the angel says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid is the most common command in Scripture. It's the command that's repeated the most in Scripture. It's more common than commands about idolatry or greed or lying, because I think the most common expression of our sinful, broken state is not idolatry or greed or lying. I think all those things are destructive and wrong. I think the most common expression of our sinful, broken state, though, is fear. Many times when God is doing something new, something different, we're afraid. This is good news the shepherds are hearing, but it startles them, it surprises them, it makes them afraid. Many times we fear change, even good change, the exact same way. We'd rather things stay the same than have things be different, even if it's better in the long run. Whatever you're facing this Christmas season, God continues to whisper his most repeated command, don't be afraid. God himself has come and he's made his home among humans. Whatever happens to us happens to him because he has joined the human race. So don't be afraid. We're not alone. He is with us and for us. And so the angel begins delivering his message to the shepherd and the sheep. And he explains that his message is good news, not bad news. You know our modern world is filled with bad news, right? It's hard to look anywhere and not have bad news. Um, I have this Twitter account I follow. Each morning, I turn on my phone, and it says, here's how many people were shot in Philadelphia. I really need to turn that off. I don't know. I like to try to pray for the families who were affected and everything, but it really puts a damper on my day to start out with that. We're surrounded by bad news. Graham Davey, a professor of psychology at Sussex University in the UK, an editor-in-chief of the Journal of Experimental Psychopathology, says, the way that news is presented and the way that we access news has changed significantly over the last 15 to 20 years. And he says these have not been good changes. These have been changes that are detrimental to general mental health. Bad news gets people's attention more than good news does. But a diet of bad news, according to uh, Dr. Davey, is that uh, it can cause symptoms of acute stress, problems sleeping, mood swings, aggressive behavior, or even PTSD. 
he did a study and he said that the number one feelings produced by the modern news cycle were either sadness or anxiety. And so you might be like, so why do any of us keep watching the news or keep clicking the links? Like, why don't I turn off this Twitter alert? That our human brains are wired to pay attention to information that scares or unsettles us. It's a concept known as negativity bias. We're just going to latch on to the negative rather than the good. Our natural inclination is to focus on bad news and to miss the good news. To fight this, we must actively pursue the good news because our world is filled with bad news. It surrounds us. It's constantly attempting to sink us. That's why the church instituted yearly celebrations to remember and reflect. That's why we have carols that we sing every year, right? We have these Christmas songs and holidays and Advent year after year. We need reminders to focus on the lights and not be drowned out by the darkness. As humans, we're so much quicker to remember the bad news and forget the good. And the Advent story is all about that in our darkest moment, God doesn't hate us, but rushes to be with us, to rescue us, and to save us the light of the darkness. That is good news, and we need to be reminded of it over and over again. That is good news that people need to hear as we act as messengers from God. Now, after the angel makes this announcement, I love how the passage here in Luke describes it. It's like, all of a sudden, behind him, all the stage lights come up, and you see all these backup dancers. It's like such a Broadway moment. Like, just read it again here with me, and tell me if this doesn't sound like Broadway. It says, um, after he's done speaking, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and singing. That just sounds like Broadway. I mean, it just sounds like a perfect Broadway moment. The lights come up, and they all start singing. And they don't waste words. Their song is only two lines long. That's a pretty short song. You know, they don't waste any time. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This simple song, though, only two lines, is actually the whole theme of the entire Bible. If you're ever hanging out with somebody and you're like, so what's the Bible all about? And you're like, well, there's some crazy stuff in there. You know, like you try to describe, how do I sum up what the Bible is about? Now you can tell them. The Bible uses the term heaven to talk about God's space and the term earth to talk about our space, like different dimensions that can sometimes overlap. Sometimes heaven and earth take up the same space. For instance, in the temple in the Old Testament or the tabernacle, heaven touched down on earth. Or most importantly, in the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth overlap in this way. God and humanity live together. The union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible was all about. If you had to sum up the story of the Bible, what it's all about, it says the union of heaven and earth. The union of God's space and our space. The reunification of humans and God. They were once fully united, and then they were driven apart by our sin and rebellion. And the Bible, especially the story of Jesus, is about how God in human form is reuniting heaven and earth. And so the angels are singing. They're, like, excited because they see in the arrival of Jesus the beginning of the restoration of heaven and earth. These two separate spaces will become one again. And that's exactly what we celebrate at Advent. We celebrate that Jesus came, but we look forward to when he will return and take his rightful place as king of a united heaven and earth. When he will unite the two into one kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this is the tension we feel at Advent. We're celebrating that the restoration of heaven and earth started in King Jesus. 
and we're anticipating his final completion of it when he returns. But right now we live in the space between those two things. We live in the now, but the not yet, as ambassadors, as messengers of the coming king, just like the angels announcing that the kingdom of darkness is crumbling and the kingdom of God is rushing in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, and we look forward to your return. And here, now, in the in-between, God, may we be faithful messengers like the angels, sharing the good news that the darkness does not win, that the bad news is not the end of the story, that your good news will defeat the darkness, that you came in human form. You became like us so that we might know you and become like you. We look forward to the day that heaven and earth are reconciled, restored, reunified into the kingdom of God. And we pray that we live kingdom lives until that moment, announcing the good news of your first coming and with anticipation of your second coming. I pray all these things like